life is beautiful, life is gay, when I give myself away, when I live to please Thee, Lord, dancing in Thy way. Let me see Thee everywhere, hear Thy melodies in the air. Let me feel Thy strength in me, give me joy to share. Life is beautiful, life is gay, when I give myself away, when I live to please Thee, Lord, dancing in Thy way. Let me see Thee That was magnificent. And good morning once again to everyone. And <laughs> welcome to our final class of Spiritual Renewal Week. Uh, my name is Badri. Sharing with me today is Tiagini Shanti, Tiagi Dion, Brahmatrini Lakshmi, and Aaron. And we'll be sharing a little bit more personally this morning on ways to keep uplifted ourselves and, and sharing with others. So, what struck me most self evidently, I don't know why it didn't hit me sooner, but and most immediately, what I do to keep uplifted is I just go to the first five extraordinarily inspiring spiritual renewal classes, and I'm uplifted, and then on the sixth one, I share with others. <laughs> Here we are. <clears throat> but uh, again, sharing a bit more personally with you this morning, I wanted to talk a little bit, just briefly, about the word dharma and the meaning of the word dharma. 
and also just bring it back to the fundamentals of the spiritual path and of my own spiritual life. You know, we've covered a lot of ground this week, from the chakras to the disciple-guru relationship to Kriya Yoga and so much more. But I just want to focus a little bit on the fundamentals of the spiritual path. Um, to borrow from the great bear Sri Balu in the Jungle Book, the bare necessities of the spiritual life. And those are, in my sharing this morning, going to be work and meditation, to borrow from uh, Paramahansa Yogananda's instructions to Swami Kriyananda and by extension to all of us of a life of intense activity and meditation. And also, you know, Swamiji himself, he has a title and chapter of his magnificent autobiography himself, The New Path, excuse me, The New Path. <clears throat> and it's titled Work Versus Meditation. But to just touch on these two aspects of the spiritual life, and first, as I said, on the, the idea or concept of dharma. You know, the word dharma, of course, is Sanskrit, and it can be translated as right action or righteousness. But also, we could think of dharma simply as that which brings our soul closer to union with God, with spirit. You know, with every spiritual teaching, there is an esoteric and philosophical aspect to it, but there's also this practical, you know, applied aspect to it, which is one of the just wonderful, wonderful things about our spiritual path, is that we're here to make it real, and we're here to live it. And so our dharma, that which brings us closer to God, um, and, and unites our soul with spirit. There's a parable I want to share with you on, on Dharma in this context. And it's a little story about two Buddhist monks. And they were out walking serenely by the seaside. And as they were walking along the shoreline, they encountered a rather pitiful sight. These two monks found that a great tide had come in. And when it went out, it had left enormous schools of fish laying upon the, the sands. And they were, it had just happened, and they were there gasping for breath and dying in, in, in agony. And the two monks had very distinct and different responses to this rather sad scene. The first monk, in his great compassion and full heart, sprung into activity and began scooping up one by one and casting these fish back into the sea, saving their lives few that he could of the, the hundreds or thousands that were beached. And imagine his upset when he looked at his brother monk. And he wasn't helping him to save the lives of these poor creatures, but in his own tremendous compassion, he had sat on the sands there and fell into deep prayer and reverie and meditation. And he was praying for the souls of these, again, these pitiful creatures and this scene for which in these two little bodies they could do very little to impact. And so, of course, this parable illustrates these two aspects of meditation, of activity. And if there was, let's say, a perfect answer, which there seldom is, or a right path, maybe ironically it's the middle path, um, as the Buddha teaches, or the Buddhist teachings show us, that there is a way of both and, where our meditation enhances and anchors our activity in God, and perhaps after a short prayer or a life of meditation practice, we can spring into activity and do what is righteous and what is right, whatever the impacts may be. 
And so our dharma is that which brings us closer to God. And we don't have to look very far, usually, to find out what our dharma is, because it's what is right in front of us and around us. Now, meditation is, of course, the bedrock of our spiritual life. And many of our speakers have touched on different aspects of this uh, this week. But it is meditation that, above all, allows God and the gurus to enter into our lives and to help us with their grace and their blessings. And so it is really meditation that enhances and makes possible all of our other spiritual practices and our techniques, you know, attunement to the guru and discipleship, uh, devotion, being hand in glove with meditation. These things are all made possible by a steadfast practice. And it's consistency above all which makes it work, you know. The other essential parts of meditation are, are longer and deeper and guru-given meditation, as it says in the incredible poem of Yogananda's Samadhi. But I don't know about you, my meditations aren't always longer and deeper. And so the consistency is what's key. That's the thing I can control, is that I show up every single day, morning and night, to do my Kriya Yoga practice, my spiritual practices, which will bring me closer to God and enhance all the rest of my time. And as we practice meditation and we contact God and we feel a touch of his peace, his love, his joy, isn't it natural that we share with others? You know, as we fill up our own cup with these divine experiences, it's totally natural that we, like these beautiful California poppies you may have seen coming up to the temple, each morning they open to the sunlight. And so as we open our hearts to God and cultivate through our meditation and spiritual practices, we open like a flower to the sun and share that beauty and that divine love and joy with others. In the autobiography of a yogi, it says, ever new joy is God, and that as you meditate through the years, he will beguile you with his infinite ingenuity. Isn't that a wonderful phrase? He will beguile you with his infinite ingenuity, and that the devotee who makes this contact with God will trade him for no lesser happiness. That once we've established that relationship with the divine and have a touch of that joy and peace in our lives, that it's completely natural that we become anchored in that and that we share with others. And isn't it true also that we cannot share that which we do not have? We can fake it a little bit sometimes, or we can try, but ultimately, only through cultivating God in our own hearts, in our own lives, can we in turn share with others. You know, the other aspect of this, kind of two sides of the coin, is that we just can't spend all our time in meditation. And so, most of our time is spent in wakeful, hopefully positive, and uplifting activity. And so, when we work for God, Yogananda says, we can accomplish twice as much and never tire. And he tells this in the context of a disciple, a direct disciple of Yogananda, I believe it was Miramata, who uh, was, had tremendous responsibilities. And he kept heaping more and more things to do upon this woman until he told her, you really need to stop working so hard. And she said, oh, of course, Master only to find that he would give her more and more responsibilities and work. 
again to tell her, you really need to stop working so hard. And when she finally got it, she said, Master, let's call it service instead of work. Let's think of God as we work. And he said, it's been a good show. <laughs> and isn't it a good show for all of us that, as Naiswami Jaya was saying earlier in his talk, that it, God is the doer, but it sure seems like we're doing a whole lot. <laughs> you know, look at how busy we are. But let's not be fooled, you know, the ruse is up. God really is flowing through us all. And isn't it beautiful the more that we tune into that flow and become his channels in our work, in our service. And I really implore you to take up service to God through Ananda, if possible, through you know, the God and the masters. The form is not really important, but Ananda, as we can all well see, is a magnificent flow of energy to serve in. Is it perfect? Absolutely not. Does it have flaws? Many of them, just like each of us does. And yet, it's a magnificent way. And frankly, Ananda and the masters, they don't really need us. It's self-serving. You know, it's the capital S, self-serving for us to serve and to take up an opportunity to share light with others. And for most of us, you know, even those of us that are teachers sometimes, we spend very little time actually sharing the teachings. We have to face it in the day-to-day, -day, all of us. And so share light with others in the little ways. You know, those are the most important ways through your relationships and through you know, the teachings if you can directly, but very often it's, it's indirectly, isn't it, that we can share with others. And so look for ways to share light and that joy that you've cultivated in your heart in meditation with others. Um, in the life of Swami Kriyananda, Yogananda told some of the other disciples, he said, referring to him as the name that he often called him Walter, he said, you should mix more with Walter. Now Swamiji wasn't present, but he heard about this later. He said, you don't know what you have in him. And I heard Swamiji say in a talk, of course, many years later, he said, I didn't know what I had in me either. <laughs> and you know, we don't know what we have in Swami Kriyananda, frankly, in each other. We don't know what we have in ourselves. Um, we don't know what we have in a Satguru, like Paramahansa Yogananda, what to speak of all these masters. And so it would take a master to fully appreciate what a gift just one of those things is. But the more we increase our capacity for self-realization, the more we behold what a tremendous blessing these things are. You know, to have this community, these gurubhais, to have, you know, master guiding our lives, to have Swami Kriyananda as a divine friend with all the many, many tools and techniques of inspiration and upliftment that we have to take advantage of and to live increasingly and share that light. And so, ultimately, you know, the path of work and meditation these are not work for work's sake. Even just to think of God or meditation for meditation's sake. As Naiswami Jyotish has often said, all of life should be about moksha and seva, divine liberation and service to others. And so that can be the framework for our entire spiritual life. How is this bringing me closer to God, my dharma, through moksha, through seva? 
And ultimately, we could just bring it all to moksha, because what is seva, if not to liberate us from the ego and from this reduced, you know, little consciousness of ego. And so, ultimately, you know, to be like Mukunda, when Yogananda was a little boy, again, as some of our speakers have shared, to be yearning for God with such passion and such zeal and enthusiasm, you know, that's how I strive to live my spiritual life and how I think all of us can come to God is to, is to bang on God's door with love and to really, you know, in, in deeper meditation, in activity, when other people are doing other things in their life and throughout the day, we think of God, you know, we live in God. And increasingly, we find that he's responding to us. You know, we, we may not always see it, but his love is with us. And the wisdom and the guidance and the blessings of God are increasingly with us in our lives. And if we can live in this spirit, just more and more of enthusiasm, of love for God, through meditation, through our work and activity, we'll be filled with the presence of God, like those California poppies opening to the sun, sharing with others. And we'll find this reciprocal relationship where as we uplift ourselves, it's natural to share with others. And as we share with others, we in turn are uplifted. And like the red hawks that soar overhead at Ananda village, they don't beat their wings with great effort, but just glide upwards on those thermal currents. And those are the winds of divine grace in our spiritual life, that the more and more we feed these fires of meditation, of activity for God, that God's grace will just sweep us up and the little things will fall away. The troubles and the worries and the trials will always be there, but they will pale a dull glow in comparison to the Son of God shining in our lives, in our hearts, that we can constantly be uplifted and share with others. Good morning, everyone. <laughs> I'm Erin, and I live in Serapir at Ananda Village. It's wonderful to see so many new faces here. I think there's even a few more people today than there were yesterday. <laughs> I thought maybe uh, attendance would taper off by Saturday, but I think there's more of us here. Thank you to the tech team, <laughs> I just have to say, and thank you to, yeah. <laughs> They're hiding out in their little cave in the back, but I think they deserve some, some recognition for what they've helped us to manifest. <laughs> and good morning to all of you that are joining us online, that have been with us all week. It's wonderful to just feel that presence of our divine friendships. So, how to keep uplifted. Well, I have to be honest because I'm being asked to share from my own personal experience. Um, it's hard. It's, <laughs> it's a struggle. I don't always stay uplifted. It's really, it's really hard sometimes. Um, a couple weeks ago, I hit a little uh, karmic pothole, you might say, kind of fell in and was just really feeling, you know, life is a struggle for joy. <laughs> just, that's master's words from metaphysical meditations. Life is a struggle for joy, and I was just feeling that struggle for joy. And I think 
many of us can relate to that, especially over the last couple of years. It's been a real struggle <laughs> to stay uplifted. But what I've realized is that it, the joy is not the struggle. Joy is who we are. It's our soul nature. The struggle is against the ego. The struggle is with our delusions, with our habits, with everything that keeps us from that soul nature, from who we really are. That's the struggle. And I'm reminded of a story when Yogananda went back to India, he visited Ramana Maharshi. I had an interview with him. And he asked him, why, does, why is there suffering? Why does God allow suffering? And Ramana Maharshi said, it's the way to realization. And Yogananda said, well, and like most of us asked, Isn't, couldn't God make an easier way? <laughs> and Ramana Maharshi responded, it is the way. And finally, Yogananda asked, well, are yoga and religion, are these antidotes to suffering? And Ramana Maharshi responded, who suffers? What is suffering? And Yogananda understood, it's the ego. The ego suffers. When we feel hurt, when we feel disappointed, when we feel angry, what suffers? The ego. The ego is what's struggling for joy, right? We're, we already are that joy. It's who we really are. The struggle is to get out of our egos, to get out of our delusions. I wanted to share some words from Nayaswami Seva, who this week was dedicated to by Devi and to our dear friend Nayaswami Anandi. But Seva had written an article that was shared around the time that she passed at the end of last year. And these few words at the end stood out to me. She said, I have come to see that to take up the spiritual path in earnest is to shed everything we think of as ourselves, all of our desires and plans. When we give up our plans and surrender to God's plan for us, we find true happiness. I don't know about you, but I, I like to make plans. I'm a planner. <laughs> um, and I notice that that's my tendency. When my energy starts to drop, uh, when I feel that sense of contraction starting to creep in, I go into planning mode. What am I going to do? How am I going to fix this? Right? I've got to figure this out. I've got to do something. <laughs> and um, I had an interesting experience in my last seclusion this spring. Usually with seclusion, I go into planning mode. I like to think about, okay, how much I'm going to meditate? What am I going to read? What's my focus going to be? And especially at the end of meditation, you know, what am I going to take out of that? How am I going to keep this going? And I think a lot of us are thinking that maybe towards the end of this week. And Jyotish did give us that, you know, advice to think of a few things to take forward. But this particular seclusion, I was just busy every single minute up until the moment of seclusion. I went up to the meditation retreat, had a meeting, and then went into seclusion. <laughs> so there was just no time for planning. And I was just completely exhausted. And I was really trying to find that motivation to focus and figure out, you know, what I was going to do in this, in this, you know, seclusion. And then it dawned on me, maybe I don't need to use more willpower. Maybe I've been there, done that. <laughs> maybe I have practiced that enough, and maybe something else is needed. And maybe I don't need to accomplish anything. 
There's, maybe there's nothing to achieve or to do. And so I just played with that a little bit during, during my seclusion, and I have to say, it was, um, I was able to relax much more and go much deeper in my meditation, which is the whole point, right? <laughs> it's to try and go deep in meditation, to feel inspired. And often we think of that as a doing thing. But I just invite you to, to play with that in your own life, to just be sometimes, to find ways to just relax and be. Um, and I found that it was a lot easier even to take that inspiration forward from that place, because I was coming from that place of relaxation and not that tense with will. <laughs> it's more relaxed and feel. Um, and during that seclusion, I did take a few books with me, one of them being this copy of Letters by a Modern Mystic by Frank Laubach. And this particular copy was given to me by Anandi. She gifted it to the community a couple of years ago because it was one of her favorite books. She carried it around everywhere with her when she first came to Ananda. And as I opened it to see if there was maybe some inspiration that I could share this morning, the very first entry just takes my breath away every time. These letters, so Frank Laubach was a Christian missionary in the Philippines, and these are his letters of his experience, particularly trying to practice the presence of God, that being with God. And this first entry is from the beginning of the year, and he's reflecting on the past year and the year ahead. And he says, I have done nothing but open windows. God has done all the rest. I have done nothing but open windows. God has done all the rest. I don't know, that line just takes my breath away every time. It's just so beautiful. Such a beautiful reminder. You know, we're not the doer. <laughs> and um, we do need to act. Willpower is necessary. It's very important. It's one of our uh, you know, aspects of our being. And of course, Master talks about willpower a lot. It's essential. Um, in Education for Life, Swami uh, talks about, you know, when the energy is heavy, when it's contracted, action is the answer. Just do something, do anything, right? So we do need to act, we do need to get the energy moving. But it's not the whole picture. Um, and we have so many wonderful techniques and practices, chanting and music and service and you know, getting together in satsang and videos to watch and events to come to and to help put on. And, um, but as Riemann was saying yesterday, we have to want to meditate. We have to want it. And where does that real desire, that real pure motivation come from? Not from our willpower, but from our hearts. And the devotion of our hearts. I had a conversation with uh, Naya Swami Lajana. I was up on our, in our community and uh, out just outside of Seattle on Kameno Island in Washington. And I was serving with Naya Swami Lajana and talking with her and I just happened, I was thinking about this topic and so I just happened to ask her, Lajana, how do you, how do you stay uplifted? And she just paused for a moment just got quiet. She said, it's here. It's always here when I need it. 
you know, we have our willpower. It's not of the mind. It's not of the intellect. It's of the heart. That's what uplifts us. Because it's what allows us to have that connection with God and Guru. Right? It's our devotion. It's our attunement. And ultimately, Guru's grace right, that uplifts us. When I think about those lowest moments, how do I get out of that? Because I'm not there now. How did I get out of that? Guru's grace. I mean, really, that's all it is at the end of the day. Swami said, human effort alone cannot take us to God. It takes the help of the guru and our receptivity and attunement to that help. That receptivity and attunement is of the heart. It's our devotion and our receptivity to that help. We have to say yes to the car keys. <laughs> we have to say yes to whatever help, whatever God and guru are sending us right now. It's for our liberation. We just have to be open and receptive to that. It's not always something that we need to do. So often it's just opening ourselves to receive what's there for us. And there's a lot of inspiration that can come to us that we can receive through our ceremonies that Swami gave us, particularly the Festival of Light. There's a few of us that have been diving deeper with the Festival of Light and reading it together and taking it into our meditations. And I, if you've never done that, I highly recommend it. It's so powerful. It's a festival of light. It's a festival of upliftment, right? There's so much power in that. It's our journey from that ego consciousness to that soul consciousness, right? From that contraction to that expansion. And we have the story of the little bird that we hear every week. We are that little bird, in case you didn't catch that. <laughs> it's our story. And he's, what happens? He gets caught in the storm. He's tossed about in the wind, he's in the dark, and he cries out, how can I fly in this darkness? Isn't that what we're asking right now? How do I keep uplifted in this darkness, in everything that's happening in the world today? How can I fly? And what is the answer? Fear not, for lo, peace awaits you in the unknown. Surrender to me, and your strength will be renewed. Not try harder, you can do it. <laughs> Surrender to me, and your strength will be renewed. Your very strength to fly has never been your own. Think about that. The very inspiration that got you here the strength that gets you to meditate every morning, that's God, that's Master. He's with you. He's, he's bringing you right along every step of the way. You guys are doing it together. Such a beautiful gift. So last year, we had Spiritual Renewal Week. It was a little different. And, <clears throat> excuse me. We did actually have a kirtan. Um, I don't know if some of you might remember, we had um, different pre-recorded videos from some of our communities around the world. And then we also had our uh, kirtan group here in the temple. And those of us that were at the village were invited to come and be in person if we wanted to, but we weren't chanting out loud at the time. So you might wonder why would I come to a kirtan if I can't chant? 
Um, and many people didn't come, <laughs> to be perfectly honest. Um, but I was feeling one of those uh, life is a struggle for joy moments, and I thought, you know, I'm just gonna show up. I'm just gonna go, because what else am I gonna do anyways? I might as well go. And honestly, it was one of the most powerful experiences of kirtan, to just receive, to just absorb that vibration, to just be in that and receive that. It was so, so beautiful. And the group in Mumbai uh, recorded the chant, Ever New Joy. And I don't know what happened. That chant came on and <laughs> something just broke open in me. Um, I don't know if anybody else felt that at the time, but it was just, yeah, it was so powerful. It was, um, I was not feeling joy, but Master was telling me, I will be your joy. It's that divine joy that no matter what we're feeling, what we're going through, that joy is always there. I will be your joy. Such reassurance, such encouragement that the Master's there to flow through us to whatever extent we're able to receive him. So our effort too is needed, but it's effort from the heart. We have to do our 25%, but I've realized through my own experience how much more uplifting that effort can be when it's guided by the heart. Swami said uh, the willpower alone can cause ruthlessness. It has to be balanced by the feeling, by the heart. So I have a story about compost because <laughs> Joshish started the week with a little story about compost, so I just figured I'd bring that full circle. Um, compost, taking out the compost is not the most uplifting task. I think most of us could probably agree. We have a lovely uh, community compost pile here, which has recently been upgraded, but Let's face it, it's not great. I mean, there's flies, it's compost, you know? I mean, you have to wash the thing out, you're getting yourself all wet, it's, it's not fun. Um, and I usually wait until the last possible moment to bring my compost down for that very reason. I'm not terribly motivated to do it, it's just um, not a fun task. But um, towards the end of last year, beginning of this year, when Anandi was sick, um, Many of us were bringing meals over, and I offered to start taking the trash down for them, including their compost. And honestly, it was the most blissful <laughs> chore. Uh, it completely transformed what it meant to take out the compost. It just was such a blessing to do this for my friend, my teacher, my mentor, my guide, to be able to take that on. and. So, yes, we have to act, but do it with love. Mother Teresa said, we can't all do great things, but we can all do small things with great love. And that's the invitation. Yes, act, do your service, but do it with love. Come back to the heart. Invite the masters to do it with us as an offering. At that time, we also had the opportunity to go and meditate outside of uh, Anandi's house, just to, to spend time there and meditate. And at the time, I was sort of struggling with my evening sadhana, especially, and just 
not feeling terribly motivated, sort of in that checking it off mode, using my willpower, okay, I did it, moving on. Um, but there was something about that time just putting, putting that friendship first and meditating for Anandi, doing my kriyas for Anandi, and just thinking of her and just really um, offering myself as a channel for that. And shortly after, I watched this talk that Devarshi had shared on, on doing Kriya for others. And he shared this quote from Swami, he says, joy will be yours when you can hold the griefs of others up to God's love for his comfort. Joy will be yours when you can hold the griefs of others up to God's love for his comfort. And I've just, you know, there's a lot of grief in the world right now. There's a lot of people that are struggling and I've just really been taking that into my meditation and into my Kriya practice especially and it's just completely transformed my Kriya practice because it's brought in devotion. It's brought in love and compassion and just gotten me out of my little self, out of like, oh, I have to do this. You know, it's, it's inspired. It's given me that motivation to do it with love. And lastly, I just want to touch on the power and blessing of divine friendship to help us to stay uplifted. I think all of us are having a little touch of that this week, just a reminder of the blessing, the power of divine friendship. And why is that? Because it's not of the ego. It's not about personalities, right? It's of the soul. And I, had the blessing to feel that divine friendship very early on when I was still in Rhode Island. I'd just first come to Ananda on the East Coast and um, just immediately felt that love and support of divine friendship. These people didn't know me, you know, and they just loved me and they just wanted the best for me and just saw the best in me. And everywhere I go, I mean, just looking out right now, I see the light like it's just shining back and forth between us. It's just so beautiful. And uh, a few of our gurubais on the East Coast at that time had recorded a few songs. I think it was around Christmas time and they gave it out as a gift. And one of the songs on there was Master's Love by Dr. Lewis. And so I had that CD in the car and I was driving home and that song came on and whew, Something just broke open again, <laughs> I had to pull over. I was just sobbing because I just could feel that divine friendship, that divine love, master's presence coming to me through my friends, through my friendships. I'll just read a, the second verse. So sweet the sound of Om, tis master's voice I hear. In all pervading silence, he whispers, I am here. My heart with joy is flowing. It sings eternally. There is no other love like the master's love for me. So sweet. There is no other love like the master's love for me. God loves us as much as he loves Jesus Christ and all of the great saints, Yogananda said, right? And that love comes to us through our friendships, through our service, through our meditations, 
So just to end, yes, life is a struggle for joy all along the way, but let's not forget the second half of that affirmation. May I fight to win the battle on the very spot where I now am. And fight that battle not just with our willpower, not just with our intellect, but with our heart, with our devotion, with our attunement, with our receptivity, with Guru's grace. He is on our side in every struggle against delusion. He's on our side. He's sitting right next to you. Right? He's sitting right in front of you, right behind you. He's all around you, cheering for you. There isn't anyone in this room who wouldn't want to support you and to love you and to help you along the way. So if there's any moment where you feel like, I'm alone, I can't do this, just reach out, reach out, make that connection. Master's there and they want, the masters want to help us and they want to help us through our friendships, through this community. So let's all fight to win that battle on the very spot where we now are, whatever master is giving you right now. Let's overcome that delusion and find that inner joy. Good morning, everyone. My name is Lakshmi, for those of you that I don't know, and I live and serve in Ananda Palo Alto. And um, I could echo what Badri started this morning with and say that it seems self-evident at this point how to stay uplifted. We could count the ways based on everything that we've experienced over this past week. And yet it's also so simple in the sense that, you know, I was toying with the idea and I almost had the courage to do it, to come running up here and say, how feels everyone? Just like, there we are. <laughs> and see that in and of itself. Maybe next time I'm up here, I will actually come running up. <laughs> But that in and of itself is how we stay uplifted because uplifting our energy is vibrational and it's shared that way through that frequency and that vibration through the love, through everything that's been shared, not only today, but over the course of this magnificent week that we've shared together. And so as I was toying with what to talk about here, the possibilities seemed limitless and endless because of course they are. But I'm gonna bring it down into just one small touch of how I stay uplifted and share three stories with you from my own life. And uh, this advice comes from the same chapter in Sadhu Beware that Nayaswami Padma was quoting from the other day, the chapter on ego transcendence. And one of the pieces of advice that he gives us in this chapter is that if you would like to overcome the natural tendency towards self-importance, enjoy your own unimportance. And it seems so simple, and yet, there's that moment of resistance that exists in all of us. Enjoy your own unimportance. And when I read this about a year ago, I decided to start making a practice of it in my own life. And any time the ego would slip in as much as I could remember to come back to this moment, because it's not just practice your own unimportance, it's enjoy your own unimportance and enjoy, enjoy. There we are in bliss already in the very practice in the very aspect of remembering to do this and to laugh along with God. And what I've been finding over the course of the year that I've been playing with this in my own life is that it takes us closer and closer to that place that we're all trying to get, that place of oneness with all infinity. And it begins 
on the most superficial level in the sense that when we can begin to enjoy our own unimportance, what naturally tends to happen is that we begin to find the humor in life. We begin to laugh along with Divine Mother whenever she's playing games with us, just like that beautiful story that Badri was sharing today, where Master kept saying, stop working so much, stop working so much. Then at the end, what a show it's been. The Master is playing with us all the time. And when we can laugh along with Divine Mother, and when we can laugh along no matter what the challenge is, what we find is naturally a buoyancy in the heart. Naturally, there's an expansion and a receptivity. The heart becomes wide open when we can laugh along with God. Yesterday, Nayaswami Jaya was alluding to the poem from Whispers from Eternity, Make Me a Smile Millionaire. And Master begins this poem by calling to God in the form of laughter. Oh, silent laughter, he says. And then smile through my soul, through my eyes, through my heart. And that's what we can begin to do when we get to play with God. And I had this, an experience of this just the other day. I landed here on uh, Wednesday afternoon, and uh, after a long drive, I decided to go for a run. And so I was staying up near the top of Iodia Way, and I thought I'd just run down and then run back up. And um, so I began, and I ran down, and everything went really well on the way down. <laughs> And then I got to the bottom of the hill and had to turn around and decided to start running back up. And I made it maybe 50 yards or so, and then took a little break. And then wouldn't you know that Divine Mother, in all of her joy in playing with us, she decided that right at that moment that I was out for a run, um, there would be an event up at Crystal Hermitage that was ending. So there was a parade of every single friend I haven't seen in over a year, and I'd run a little bit and stop. Hey, Lakshmi, how are you? And I'd say, I'm on a run, I'm on a run, I'm on a run, over and over again. And people were very nice at the beginning, and they were saying, it's really hot, there's altitude here. Yeah, this is a big hill. And I just kept making excuses and making sure everybody knew I was on a run. <laughs> And then finally, by the time the last car came driving down the road, and they said, hey, Lakshmi, how are you? I said, God is taking me on a walk. And I just surrendered, and we laughed, and it was beautiful. <laughs> and that's God playing with us, you know? And this is a silly example, because so what if I'm running up a hill or not? But those are the challenges that we get to face into. Anytime the ego wants to say, no, no, I'm, you know, uh, the title of this project, I'm with this self-definition, that self-definition, whatever it may be that we want to grab onto, if we can just relax and begin to remember that Divine Mother's playing with us, then we're beginning to, as my friend, I had a conversation with my friend the other day, and she reminded me of a story that um, Naiswami's Jyotis and Devi shared when they were here in Palo Alto about an architect. I don't remember all the context uh, around it, but an architect who was working on a building here, and he said at the end of that that, oh, you know, most people in the world are working with the laws of gravity, but here, you're working with the laws of levity, which is true in our buildings, but it's also true in our heart. That's what we're trying to do, to uplift our hearts. And when we can laugh along with God, just like that beautiful story that Badri was sharing, there's the master just laughing right back with us. Or just like St. Teresa, I was immediately reminded when St. Teresa in the river is knocked off the mule and brought to the other side and she's sopping wet and Jesus appears to her. 
And he says, she says, why do you treat your friends this way? And or, you know, he says, why? she says, why would you do this? And he says, well, I treat all my friends this way in a playful tone. And she responds right back, that must be why you have so few. <laughs> and that's the root of it. Doesn't matter if we're sopping wet, whatever the metaphor of that may be, if Jesus Christ, if divine bliss, if divine mother is standing right in front of us, we're in joy. We're enjoying our own unimportance. Here we are, just one cosmic speck in the midst of this great reality. But the beautiful thing about that, when we can laugh along with God, is that it takes us deeper. And that laughing at ourselves, laughing along with that divine Leela, those are the seeds that we begin to plant, which sow and root that remembrance of self-forgetfulness. The remembering to be self-forgetful. And self-forgetfulness is what we're ultimately trying to practice. And up here we've heard over and over again, and Vajri again was sharing stories today of what it means to forget ourselves in our work, to forget ourselves in our meditation, to forget that we, this ego, are carrying ourselves around everywhere we go, but that Divine Mother's hand is always right behind it. And a story that I had of this took place a few years ago. And in Palo Alto in the summer months, um, we do our fire ceremony outside and we have a big fire pit and we all stand around it and everybody takes rice and we all offer it together into the fire, which is a really beautiful practice, but then at the end of it, it needs to be cleaned up. And this used to be one of my saver roles, which I was happily doing for many years. And one day I came in and I was just grumpy and I didn't want to be there and I didn't want to be cleaning up all of the materials and the grains of rice and everything that needed to go into it. I wanted to be inside meditating. What I thought I needed was to have a blessing from one of the light bearers and to sit down and to feel God's presence because I wasn't feeling happy that day for whatever reason. But Divine Mother had me outside and so I began to begrudgingly clean everything up that needed to be cleaned up. And the very last thing to do is to sweep up all the rice so that the birds don't come and eat it. And again, we can just paint the picture. It was hot, I was tired, I was angry. I grabbed the broom and I really didn't want to be there. And the thought came into my mind, Lakshmi, where are you going to be? Where are you going to go? And then I remembered that what surrounded me on the ground with all of these grains of rice was this karma that my brothers and sisters, that my guru bai had impregnated with the desire to be free and had offered into the fire of Divine Mother. And I had the great privilege of sweeping up every last grain of rice and offering it into the trash can, but nonetheless into, <laughs> I wasn't supposed to be a joke, but, <laughs> but nonetheless, just to offer that rice, offer that back into, with the intention and the reality of understanding the importance of what I was doing. That I had that opportunity to carry out. These were the grains of rice that didn't make it into Divine Mother's burning fire. And so I had the opportunity to clean it up. And as when I told this story to my friends in Palo Alto, you can rest assured there was not one stray brother left behind that day <laughs> with the grain of rice. And I felt more uplifted than I ever could have felt when I was sitting, if I had been sitting in the temple that day, because I'd forgotten myself. I came in and thought that I could tell Divine Mother what I needed, but instead, I was able to just relax and to be in that moment and to remember my, to enjoy my own unimportance that I, this little ego Lakshmi, don't get to declare what's going to help me feel uplifted and free, but that it's right there in front of me if I'm searching for it 
It's right there in front of each one of us. And the beautiful thing about this, of practicing self-forgetfulness, is that slowly by slowly, what we begin to understand is that we're no longer even practicing the reality that God is the doer. That disappears and it simply becomes God is. That there is no reality outside of Divine Mother and that all of the cosmic universe exists within our own spine. There is nothing outside of that joy, all by simply remembering to enjoy our own unimportance, to let the ego go moment by moment. And we find ourselves resting in that place of eternity, just like little Krishna when he's eating clobs of mud and his mother comes over and she opens his mouth and there's all of the universe waiting inside. Now I told you that I have three stories. I wish my third story were something like that, but yet the universe is not inside my mouth that you can see. But I did have an experience of this. Just a few weeks ago, I was on a seclusion, and on my very last day in seclusion, um, I was out on the ocean, and the, tides, uh, the tide had pulled out, so there were, all of the tide pools were exposed, and I decided to spend an hour at the tide pools before I needed to get in my car and drive home. And I told Divine Mother on my way down that I wanted a starfish blessing. Just wanted to see a starfish and to know that she was near. And then I spent an hour and I was searching high and low everywhere that I could to try and find that starfish. And I found crab and sea anemone and all kinds of marine animals, but no starfish. And one more tide pool, one more tide pool, the time was ticking down to when I knew I needed to leave and finally said, okay, no problem, Divine Mother, we've had a beautiful week, let's go home. And I turned around and just started walking back and there, just as I was turning the corner to head back up onto the beach and onto the path, was this giant, beautiful purple starfish. And it was the most beautiful reminder that God is everywhere. Here we are searching and striving and trying so hard to find Divine Mother. But if we can forget ourselves for just a moment, if we can celebrate that greater reality that we already are a part of everything in the universe, then Divine Mother appears in the form of a starfish, in the form of a memory, a divine friend, whatever it may be that she's right there waiting for us to bless us and to be with us. And all we have to do is withdraw the energy in, to meditate, to offer it up at the spiritual eye, and to practice it in every single moment. It's been so beautiful to hear all of the stories that are shared, not only this week and today, because just as Aaron is saying, it's a roller coaster. And so much of us wants to be pulled out into the world, but all we have to do is remember in every single moment to enjoy our own unimportance, to practice it, and begin by laughing with God, and then working with God, and then ultimately completely forgetting the self and being one with God. Let's stand and stretch a little bit, and rising up to greet the world, mentally calling out to Divine Mother, receive me, Mother, receive my love. And when you're ready, you can go ahead and sit back down. Thank you, Neha. My name is Dion. I live and serve here at Ananda Village. It's a joy to come together and spend this spiritual renewal week with such friends. 
And I was thinking about today's subject and a experience with Swami Kriyananda came to mind, an actual dream. And it came early on in my time here at Ananda and we were all gathered together at a spiritual renewal week. And we're at the amphitheater and we're enjoying his darshan, his inspiration. And I felt a little distracted because I wanted a personal blessing. I wanted Swami to recognize and acknowledge me personally. So I can hear that sort of hankering of heart, trying to draw that blessing to myself. And as long as I was holding on to that, Swami never looked at me. He kept looking at everybody else, but not Dion. But then the stillness overcame my heart, and there was such a palpable bliss that filled me. I could feel this torrent of blessing that Swami was pouring into all of us in the audience. And as soon as that stillness stole over my heart, Swami turned his head and locked eyes with me. And we stayed there in silent communion for a long moment until that pesky thought came, he's looking at me. <laughs> and as soon as that thought came, the bliss dissipated, Swami looked away and I felt like I was just a rock falling to earth. And, but this experience taught me many, many things. But for today, I would like to explore the nature of support. Because support can go in one of two directions. The support that we draw from life, and in consequence, what we offer to other, others, can either be reinforcing of the ego, it can either reinforce this sense of I, me, mine, this little pettiness, this idea that we're somehow separate, that we need something else, or the support we draw on and share can be liberating. It can remind us of our soul nature. It can expand our consciousness. It can move us closer to that true side of ourselves, that sat chit ananda. And so I had another experience that sort of highlighted this. Some years ago, I was going through a very difficult time in life and I was in a mood. And I was moping around Master's Market of all places, trying to shop my mood away. So I was, you know, you don't have many opportunities to shop in Ananda, so you know, there you are in the market, you know, getting the ice cream and the, you know, the cheese and the bread, whatever, you know. And Naya Swami Devi walked in. And again, I could feel that hankering of heart that I wanted to be comforted. I wanted to be soothed. Oh, it's okay, everything's okay. And she knew very well, you know, what I was going through, where I just returned from. And I walked up to her, and she looked at me, and she said, be tough. <laughs> Thank you, Davy. <laughs> because what we necessarily want isn't what we always need, and that's what true divine support is. Divine Mother is here to support our liberation. Great souls, the saints, the masters, they're not here to clean up our mud puddle. They're here to awaken us and lift us out of the mud puddle. And so each and every one of us have a choice to choose that consciousness in our life to uplift and expand our awareness. And as we do this, we find the capacity to share with others natural, naturally present. Just like a rose will naturally share its scent with the world, we naturally share the vibrations of our awareness. Through every thought we think, every practice we embrace, every decision we make, 
The very life we live molds and shapes us. And in that molding, we offer to the world what we've created. But thankfully for us, we're not the ones doing it. We're opening to a power that is much greater than ourselves. It is God who lifts us out of the mud puddle. You know, there's this story that Swami relates in The New Path where he's in the presence of his guru, Paramahansa Yogananda, and Yogananda-ji is talking about some mundane things, filling potholes, some maintenance projects around the ashram. But Swami, being a very wise soul, closed his eyes and felt the presence behind Yogananda's words. And what he felt was this torrent of bliss. That it didn't matter what, what Master would talk about. It didn't matter whether he was giving a lecture, offering Kriya, or talking about potholes. It was bliss. Because he lived in that bliss. And so the same potential lies in each one of us to choose the light, to choose the bliss, to embrace that path we know which is going to be uplifting to our consciousness. And that can happen in small and great ways. And so keep an eye out. Keep an eye out for those moments in your life where you can turn your heart upwards, that you can open yourself even a little more deeply to that bliss within. And as you do so, Divine Mother has an open channel to flow through. Because it's God who blesses us. It is God who blesses all. And all we need to do is cooperate with that blessing. We're all mountaineers. We're scaling this mountaintop of self-realization. And interestingly enough, the mountaintop is not just straight up. There's an occasional plateau that we come up to. And this plateau of relaxed effort, maybe a little bit of self-satisfaction. Ah, this joy is so nice. I'm going to Netflix and chill. <laughs> and we kind of relax on our laurels a little bit. And there's this experience that Master shares, that her Swami shares with Master, that a disciple was having his first Kundalini experience. And he was feeling so much bliss in his spine. And enthusiastically, he wanted to share that with Yogananda. Look, Master, look where, how far I've come. And Master responded, that's nothing. Could you imagine that? Like, if I was feeling bliss rushing on my spine, I would think, Hari Bull, like, I've made it. <laughs> but he does not want us to grow satisfied with little nibblings of peace, little nibblings of joy, little nibblings of blessing. Because there's an infinite potential waiting to be awakened. He wants us to keep investing those blessings so that we can continue going deep continue to expand, continue to recognize those blessings aren't, aren't ours to hoard. Those blessings are ours to receive, to offer back up, and expand. And in that expansion, we forget ourselves. We see all life is part of God's consciousness. And in that self-forgetfulness, others can also be blessed. And so... Introspection is a very powerful tool in this effort for us to continue being motivated on the path. And it's something that I've really embraced as a practice. Yoganandaji said to analyze your life every day at the end of each day, to see which battles you won, which battles you lost, and re-energize for the next fight the next day. So I invite you, ask yourself, who am I? Not me, but yourself. <laughs> 
just want to be clear. I do not want to receive those emails. <laughs> but who am I? And what do I want to become? But most importantly, what's holding me back from achieving that? Now, that can often be a little scary. I mean, most of you know, humanity does a great job hiding away from the uncomfortable truths within, to numb themselves of the uneasiness that aches in their heart. But for devotees, that is the very path we must walk to find God. We have to recognize where we are right now, what we want to become, and what's holding us back. Because only then will we have really something to offer God. You know, Master said, practice when it's easy. Sure, I want to offer my joy. I want to expand that joy and that offering. But give God your problems. Give God your challenges. Give God your whole being. And what better motivation for self-offering than to meet the edge of our own personal potential or ability. And so when we introspect, we're brought right to that edge of, God, that mountain is tall. That mountain is steep. Steep. How can I overcome all this? But that's the important point. We can't on our own. With God, the impossible becomes possible. You know, the writer of the Bhagavad Gita, the Mahabharata, Vyasa, he did a very interesting and important thing when he was naming the characters in that story. As many of us know, those characters represent psychological, spiritual tendencies that exist within us, the good, the bad. And so by identifying those more worldly tendencies, what he was doing was drawing them out of the shadows. He was saying, I see you. You're not going to silently influence me anymore. I recognize who you are, the power you may have, but nothing is more greater, more, nothing is greater than divine grace. And so, again, mountaineer, I'm sure we heard this story of this professional mountaineer who's trained most of his life, who was scaling this very difficult cliff and he was climbing and climbing and climbing. He reached this ledge. And he looked ahead and he couldn't proceed forward because the rock face was inverted. It's like, wow, I got myself in a pickle here. He looks behind him, trying to go back. He can't go back. It's too difficult of a climb. He cannot go back where he came. And so he has to go forward or he's going to perish on this ledge. And so he makes the first attempt and he reaches that point of inversion and gravity pulls him down. He does it again, pulls him down again and again. He can't make it over, but why stop trying? And so about the 40th or 50th, 100th attempt, he made the effort. He reached that point where typically gravity does what it does best, but instead of feeling that pull downward, he felt a force pushing his body against that rock ledge allowing him to make that final ascent. And haven't we all felt that sometimes? We're stuck on a ledge. We know we can't go back where we came to return to a worldly life, even to return to the consciousness we felt maybe a year ago or a day ago. I mean, there's only one direction for us, and that's up. 
But that upward ascent is not from our own power. And so we have to call on that divine grace. We have to befriend divine grace. We have to make God our nearest and dearest companion in all that we do. And when we do this, we find that that divine support is always there, purifying in in a way that the mind can't comprehend, but our soul recognizes this is right. This is where I belong. This is my true home. I had an experience some years ago with Naya Swami Jaya. And when I first met Naya Swami Jaya, I felt intuitively I want to be near this man. I want to learn from this soul. And so naturally of a young neophyte, I'm like, Jaya, I'll help you with anything. Call on me, you know. I'm here for you. And he took me up on it. And a couple of weeks later, he emailed me saying, I need, a help. I need some help with a roof patch. Like, okay, great, let's patch a roof together. This is fantastic. And when I arrived to his house, it was on a shed, I said, I don't think Jaya really needs my help patching this little square, but I'm here. And out of the blue, he started sharing this story that years ago, Swami said, very few souls have the karma to come onto the spiritual life and to stay on the spiritual life for an entire incarnation. And Jaya often pondered why that would be. And it came, and I was pondering, why is he telling me this? (laughs) (laughs) And he said that people come to the spiritual path because uh, because of their good spiritual karma that they generated in past lives that this wave of karma uplifted them, reawakened spiritual interest, reawakened the desire to meditate, to move the community, to practice all the teachings. So they come to the spiritual life and they are inspired, they're engaged, but then they don't reinvest new energy. They enjoy that past karma. They enjoy the blessings that past karma brings, but then that wave eventually loses its strength to keep one strong on the path when the pull of maya is always there. You know, Yoganandaji said that everything in creation is consciousness. And there's two forces to that consciousness. There's that pull of delusion that's always there, a conscious pull. And then there's that pull of divine love. And so if we don't reinvest fresh energy in day-to-day, little-by-little ways, our karmic bank account's gonna run thin. It's gonna run out. We're gonna use up all our savings. And so I've really took that to heart because I always held in my mind that my effort needs to look a certain way. My meditations have to be so-and-so. And I remember this experience I had with um, a young man just received Kriya, and he stopped practicing Kriya because he wasn't practicing it perfectly. And I was like, wow, that's a perspective. And I'm sure in small ways, that perspective is in maybe most of our hearts, not to stop practicing Kriya, but that discouragement somehow holds us back from giving everything to the path. Because we don't come to the path because we're already perfect. We come to the path and practice these techniques to become perfect. And so have fun with that process, like Lakshmi was saying. Have fun with Divine Mother. 
and give Divine Mother that imperfection. Give Divine Mother your best effort in everything you do and lead with that attitude of self-offering. You know, a dear friend of ours, I forgot exactly what sort of chart she reads, but she reads some kind of a chart. And <laughs> I know it's not astrology, that's, that's why it's confusing, but she wanted to offer some energy in exchange. And she printed out this page on my chart and it just had nothing but self-offering just again and again. You have to give yourself, give yourself. And isn't that true for all of us? That the ego likes to hold on to its little reality. It likes to covet from life its fair share of the pie. But we have the whole pie already. Everything we need is already within us. And if we but can lead with that sense of self-offering in our service, in our friendships, in our relationships, in our meditation, that our life is a constant prayer of offering, we will find that Divine Mother's presence is always there, always lifting us up over that rock face, making the impossible possible. I think I had to get to be 75 before there was a microphone that finally fit me. Usually I'm up here. So thank you. Wow. I know that's not a terribly sophisticated thing to say right now, but just really what's in me. This is actually an amazing position that I find myself in. That Everybody said SRW ended yesterday, but as you can see, SRW did not end yesterday. <laughs> and when I was thinking about this talk, um, just after I arrived here, because like so many of us, we're busy up until that very moment, each night I'd have a thought and then the next day, somebody would talk about it. <laughs> you remember all the way back to Monday when Joe Tish was up here, and he looked at Davey and he said, I hope I didn't steal your story. And she said, we'll talk about that later. <laughs> I felt that way. So all of you speakers, you stole my stories. <laughs> but you know, really, and then today, who could have planned to be here in this very moment Truly, the last speaker, well, other than Sunday service, of SRW, after these four extraordinary talks, every one of them. And I'm just, <laughs> I'm almost speechless, but I'll take a little time. <laughs> you know, in every speaker all week, what I have felt, and I mean this, Literally, this is not hyperbole. Right up until now, every soul filled with wisdom, with awareness, with uh, humor, with humility. Every speaker, nobody's here really talking about themselves. Every person reflecting on what they've learned on this path and what they've learned from Swami Kriyananda 
every one of them, and how much he gave to them, how beautifully he loved them, how he helped shape them into who they are now. And I mean for all of us, certainly these extraordinary souls who have spent their entire adult life with Swamiji. But listen to the speakers today. I heard Anandi say once in one of her talks a while ago, she said, we're second generation disciples. And I love that, that thought, the way she held it. And I feel like here, here we are with third generation disciples. And we can feel how that wisdom and the love and that absolute truth just resides. It's in the ether. It's everywhere. First master with Swamiji, then Swamiji. They just put it out there. And if souls are open, if their consciousness is uplifted as a receiving um, receptacle, then all of that wisdom can come in. Very much, I think it was Asha who spoke this week about the importance of receptivity. <clears throat> but I'm listening to these people, and I know there are many people here who never met Swamiji. And yet, his entire vibration has just filled every one of us. It's just, it's so huge. It's truly, it's way beyond, way beyond words. I remember, I think this often when Master said to Swamiji, you have a great work to do. And very often it's come to me, and perhaps I've even said it here, we all have a great work to do. That's what Swamiji was here to show us. That's why every song, every line in every book, every uh, talk that he gave, somebody said yesterday, maybe it was Riemann, he liked to play with a line. And I have found that to be true. He might have been referring to uh, Raja, the Raja Yoga course. That course, I don't know how many times I took it, have taught it. You can pick out any line, and it's just filled with truth. And that's what Swamiji did. He just sh shared his vibration in every way, in every moment, until we're here now. And we're in these colors because of him. We're in these shapes because of him, his, the music, everything that we're allowing to impact our lives. Now, we have a responsibility. I hate to sound so serious after all this great humor. I thought, how can I talk about it? But you know, it's just true. When I think about what it is that inspires me every day, everything that everybody's talking about today, everything, everything I've heard, I want to go back and listen and 
write a little synopsis of every talk and just be affected again by the vibration because it's all there. But I actually feel a responsibility to be the very best I can be in each moment. I have a story, I don't even know if I've ever shared this with Joe Tish and Davey, but you know, everything that's happened in my life at Ananda, each thing I felt ready for when I was asked to be a minister, it felt like, yes, I've been ministering when I was asked to be a light bearer. And anyway, on and on. I get a call from them one day, and Joe Tish says to me, I awakened this morning and felt that I should call you and ask you to become a Kriyacharya. And I think most of you here have taken Kriya, but for those of you who haven't, it is the path that, uh, it's what Paramahansa Yogananda brought Kriya Yoga to the West as a path to self-realization. I don't have the exact words right now, but a great saint once said, it's, it's the uh, highest and best path through self-effort to reach self-realization or to reach God. And certainly, we all feel that way because we're practicing it every day. It's sacred. I've always held it as so sacred. I remember when I was initiated, and it was many, many years ago, but I remember it. And any chance I've ever had to be at a Kriya initiation, I would be there. A reinitiation, always taking it deeper, deeper. Well, when Joe and Davies said that to me, my reaction was, no, I can't do that. Be a Kriyacharya? It felt, I just, I don't know how to say it, but it, I felt so, I would like to use the word humble, but in a way I think I, it was not quite humble, would it have been good? I, I, I just didn't feel worthy. And as the words were being, there was a, a long silence, and as the words were being formed to explain to them, after Jyotish had said, I awakened with the inspiration, you know, this is how Maya works, I was forming my argument about why that was wrong and why I was not a Kriyacharya. The thought came, just popped in so quickly and said, Shanti, what will you do? What do you feel you need to do to make yourself worthy of being a Kriyacharya? You say yes, and you become a Kriyacharya. You know, just, I didn't think this at the time, but just came to my mind because I snapped my fingers. Sister Kiana Mata, when she said to the other nun who was about to explain to Master himself why Sister couldn't do what he was asking of her. And she said to her, when Master calls, you say yes and make it snappy. And if you don't know how to do, or you feel it's too hard, you figure that out later. But 
Now, I don't know how many years ago that was, but in that instant, it just came to me that everything I would do, everything, a commitment to lengthening my meditations, to every day doing 108 Kriyas, it's just how I would relate to everybody in, my, in our congregation. It just all came. It wasn't bullet points. It was master, like saying, don't you dare say no. Whatever, this is being asked of you, given to you, handed to you. You say yes and make it snappy. And here's how it's going to be. Well, that is a very important thing for us on this path, a very important thing. Davy said the other day in her talk, and she was talking about how Master said that we use 10% of our energy. We don't want to use 10% of our energy. And she said something, this is, does not relate to how Badri made a different point today with Buddhism, but Davy said, there is no middle path on the spiritual path. And it was just so right when she said it. No, we are all in, and we have a responsibility to be all in. Not that it doesn't turn into joy, as everybody's been talking. My Lord, what a joy being a Kriyacharya in the way that I feel Master Swamiji would have wanted us to. Suddenly, that which felt like work, really, prior to that, 108 Kriyas every single day, now it's like 108 Kriyas every day, at least once. It's fabulous. It's not saying that that needs to be everybody's goal, but it is saying that the spiritual path takes effort, as everybody was just saying. But here's, here's the thing. This moment in the autobiography of a yogi that's been referred to several times this week now, it came to me about six months ago, and I think I've spoken about it in every talk I've given since. It didn't come to me, of course, I've read it how many times in the AY, but it came to me. It settled in somewhere. After Master had that experience of cosmic consciousness with Sri Yukteswar, and he said these extraordinary words. He said, I cognized, cognized means perceived, it came, no mind work in there. The center of the Empyrean. The Empyrean means not just all that exists, but that place where our consciousness and God's consciousness are one. So it is all that is everywhere. I cognize the center of the Empyrean as a point of intuitive perception in the center of my heart. And that day, months ago, when I read it, I felt it. And I'm sure many of you have. Just being right there in that utter stillness, in that place of pure 
divine love, where the heart has been pure, uplifted and purified of all desire, all attachment. He's saying, I found that in me, and it exists in all of you, Master speaking, not me. And I realized that that is the way that every effort that we make, every bit of work that becomes seva, of effort that becomes joy, of being there knowing God is going to show you a starfish of all things. I mean, all of that has a ripple effect out into the universe that affects every living being. Maybe they're aware of it, maybe they're not. People call, you know, I just thought of you. You tell a story and somebody says, I thought of that last night, a friend in Boston even, not here. Maybe they feel it, maybe they don't. Maybe they're just walking and they have a moment of feeling safe or loved. But in that way, we touch the whole world. In that way, we have a great work to do, and we need to do it. I'll share one more story, and then I'll close soon. <laughs> um, one day, and I tell you this story with all humility, because these stories are just stories about a moment of truth. And when it's pure truth, when it's just right there, and it's about God, it's about Dharma, it's about all of us, truth is one and eternal, Swamiji tells us every Sunday. Realize oneness with it in your deathless self within. What a beautiful reminder every week. So I tell you this story because it's not just my story, it's all of our stories. I was meditating in Babaji's cave one day up at the meditation retreat. If you don't know it, it is literally a cave. It's a meditation spot that was built underground. And I was having a nice, nice meditation, but suddenly I knew, I felt the masters come in. You know, it's, a, it's not a big space. I just experienced them behind me, all of them. <laughs> it was a little sc scary at first, but in a moment, I moved to that place of, wow, you are sitting here with the masters. And then this uh, knowing came to me. They were saying to me, we're about to give you a lot to do. Okay. <laughs> yeah, sort of like that. Like, what have I been doing for all of these years? <laughs> but here's what, they, here's what came next. It wasn't voices or visions. I don't have those. I don't get those. But it just is a knowing. I imagine many of you know this experience. And they said, if you ever get worried, if you forget who's doing it, find the nearest altar. That's what they said. So for the next two years, every time I would get like, I can't do this, I can't do this, I would run and find an altar. 
It's, it's not all that hard in my life because I live in an Ananda community, but sometimes you're not right in front of an altar. But I mean it. I would go to the altar and I would sit there, please remind me, please let me feel you. Until, honestly, two years into it, I realized that what they were talking about is the true altar in our own hearts, that point of intuitive perception. They were saying to me, when you forget, of course, knowing I would repeatedly, find that place in your heart. Find that place and remember, we are there and we are with you in every moment and we're offering to you right now. We're gonna have you work really hard, so hard that you get, you really get, I can't do this. This is humanly impossible because so often that's how things, things feel. Erin was saying she went into seclusion. She was exhausted. I knew how she felt. I thought she was gonna say, so I just slept for the first three days. <laughs> because, I mean, we're, we're laughing because many of us have done that. You know, you find yourself in seclusion and you're reading a novel, sort of like, this is not right. But it, it takes a while. Okay, I'm revealing something about myself. Maybe none of you have had that experience. But, you know, we're on a path. We're on a path. Riemann mentioned the other, the second story teaching of Swamiji's that's just been with me so deeply. And that is that place in the third to the last chapter of the Raja Yoga book. And it's on astral anatomy. So it's a challenging chapter. But in there, he's talking about Kundalini. And he's talking about, as Riemann, I wish I could remember Riemann's exact line. In fact, I have Riemann here, so if I get it really wrong, I'll invite you right up, Riemann. But basically, that that Kundalini is that ball of energy, that astral energy, that descended from which manifested these bodies, from which manifested all of the delusion that we live with, everything. It's sitting at the base of our spine, literally as the potential of our soul's freedom. That's, is that? Yeah, okay, I'm getting a thumbs up. <laughs> because he said it so beautifully, but that's what it is. And I say to everybody, imagine it as a ball of the tiniest little string that you could imagine wrapped really tight, but it's a big ball and it's there. And what does Swamiji say? Swamiji says, every time in this chapter on astral anatomy, every time you smile, every time you do a good deed. Every time you have satsang, you join uplifted company. Every time you do anything positive, dharmic, drawing energy in and up the way we as devotees, as disciples, as yogis want to do, he says a little bit of kundalini 
gets released. And it comes up our astral spine, and it just starts working on these chakras to open them for that moment that we're all waiting for, like St. Teresa of Avila said, like somebody with a gun shoots it up her spine. Doesn't sound like a great image, but since, since we happen to know it's a good experience, we have to hear it that way, or so we've been told, or so I've been told. But imagine that. We're talking about how we stay uplifted, and it's actually rather simple. It can be simple. Yes, it can be a struggle, but just think, every time you smile, every time you say something positive, what happens the next time you go to approach somebody who hasn't been nice to you? What if you look in their eyes and you see Divine Mother looking back at you? What if you open your heart and you love that person who's been mean to you? What if you go to have a critical thought about somebody, but you grab it, and you think of them as a perfect divine soul? All of that starts releasing this kundalini until we're free. And Jyotish said this so perfectly in his talk on Monday. He said, we don't change ourselves to change somebody else. When has that ever worked? You know, I have had, it's the most common question. Every four months I do a two-hour Q&A online. The most common question, it comes in six different forms, but it's the same question. How can I get my partner to believe in these teachings? How can I change my parents? I'm worried about my children. How can I change them? And you know, there's only one answer live the teachings. When have we ever changed anybody's mind through words about politics, about how to raise their children, or about religion? The answer is never. It doesn't happen, and it won't happen. But if we change ourselves, and as Joe Tish said, we change ourselves to raise and uplift our consciousness, and then that consciousness becomes what affects people. So somebody sees, wow, these people smile a lot. They laugh a lot. They have great music and they enjoy it. They can go to a kirtan and not sing and feel the most uplifted they've ever been. I want what they have. That's the only way we change our consciousness. And then we hear Swamiji say in that chapter, this is all you need to do. It's like what, Master, what uh, Sri Yukteswar said to Master. God is easy. Everything else is hard. So if we focus on that, on just those acts of kindness, if we can't do, what if we're not somebody who can sit and do 108 Kriyas? That's not the goal. I remember once, years, 22 years ago, I was 21, I was moving into the community. And I said to Asha, we were in a discussion about Kriya. And it was about higher Kriya and whether I should take higher Kriya at that point. And I said to her, you know, I know this truth. If I get one Kriya perfect, 
One Kriya, by the way, for those of you who don't know, it's a form of meditation. It's a, um, it's a, a basically a pranayama technique, thank you, searching for the word. But whatever it is, it doesn't matter. If we have a perfect moment, and for those of us who know Kriya, one perfect Kriya, perfect, means we are completely in the very center of our being, right in the middle of our astral spot, then we're free. So um, I felt if I don't take the higher Kriyas now, I'll work on the number of first Kriyas that I'm doing. Or for those of you who don't have Kriya, you just try and be there. Is it five minutes? That's beautiful. Can you really sit perfectly still with your mind calm for five minutes? So I mentioned my, what I needed to do to become a Kriyacharya, but that was my karma, that's for me. Not setting any bars. Each soul is individual, just doing what they need to do, yes, next, to free that Kundalini. You know, I'm, I'm going to end, I'm sorry it's late, but um, I just, I wanted to read, uh, this, this, will, this I'll close with, uh, I wanted to read three things, but I'm not going to, don't worry. I, we don't have time. I will read the last line of Master's poem uh, in Whispers called Reveal Thyself. It's a very, because again, we're talking about how we stay uplifted, how we call on God. What are we doing all the time to keep ourselves in tune, to recognize those moments where we can grab a hold of that energy and be with God? It's, uh, it's simple, actually, but as Aaron said, it's not always easy. The last line of this poem, Master talking to God for pages and pages, reveal thyself is that line that we've, we've also heard this week. I'll read the last two lines. In the stillness of my soul, I humbly bow before thine omnipresence, knowing that thou art ever leading me onward and upward on the path of self-realization. I want thee, O God, that I may give thee to all. Now, that's a beautiful line. That's exactly what Swamiji said all his life. He wanted to know God, and then he wanted to share God. That's our inspiration. But I'd like to just read these few stanzas from the Bhagavad Gita. We read it every year as one of our Sunday services. I don't have that particular reading, but it's from the 12th chapter. Krishna is speaking to Arjuna. Arjuna is disciple, every man, which means us. And he's saying, how do, I, how do I become a perfect yogi? And I'll just, I'll skip a couple of the stanzas because I, I do feel badly about it, staying here. But he starts with the highest uh, attunement to God. He said, for those who venerate me only, offering to me all their actions, their minds concentrated on me by yoga practice 
and their hearts' feelings uplifted to me in devotion. Such devotees I rescue from the ocean of mortality. That's his promise. But in the kindness of God's heart, he knows we're not all there. We can't do that. We're not able to be that concentrated. He says, immerse your consciousness in me alone. Direct all discrimination towards finding me. If, however, you find yoga practice too difficult, then perform every action in the thought of me. And then he says, this is the last uh, shloka, but if even while active, you cannot think of me, he's saying if you're out there and you just can't think of God, then give me your intentions. And we know the, the interpretation that we always read that is so beautiful, Sir Edwin Arnold, where he says in that last stanza, but if in this thy faint heart fails, give me thy failures. Now that's been mentioned up here several times today. The, the best we can do to keep our mind focused on God, but just to remember where our intention is. Uh, Joe Tish says in, in his How to Meditate book, and it's just such a simple reminder, every time we lift our eyes to the point between the eyebrow, again, such a simple action, but how many times in the day do we remember? Because we're only sitting to meditate a short part of the day. Every time we just raise our gaze, we increase our magnetism, and we're drawing that energy, and we are changing our consciousness. And that change of consciousness, those points along the way, just connecting those dots are what we call the path. So the more we can do that, the more often we can do that, the more clear the path becomes. And we've actually been able to find God in these very simple day-to-day, -day, remember me here, there, smile, everything we've talked about. And then we find ourselves resting in God. Thank you all for your patience. I'm so sorry to stir up. Thank you.